Well, hey, everybody, if you have your Bibles, let's grab them and let's open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 9. Let's continue our time in God's Word together as we go through this beautiful book of 1 Samuel. And today we have a large portion of the Scripture. We're going to be looking at chapter 9, but we're going to be rolling into chapter 10 all the way to verse 16. So for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all that. I am going to read the first 14 verses of chapter 9, and then we'll jump into chapter 10 and read those 16 verses. That'll give us enough for us to understand what exactly is going on in this text, this most interesting text from this book of 1 Samuel. A lot to cover, a lot to discuss, and I pray it'll be a blessing to us all as God speaks to us this morning through his word. So let me read 1 Samuel chapter 9. As always, you, you follow along in your Bible. If you do not have a Bible, at the end of our service in a welcome area, we would love to give you a Bible for you to take home with you to have a copy of God's Word. So 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1 says this. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of a fire, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. He passed through the hill of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalashah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zoph, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there's a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servants, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread and our sacks are gone, and there's no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel, silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, come, let us go see the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called the seer. And Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And they went up the hill to the city. They met a young woman coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? They answered, he is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless a sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now go up for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out towards them 
on the way up to the high place. Let's move to chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When he, when he depart from me, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin, uh, Zelza. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying th three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you the two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a, a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me at Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offering and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When, they turned, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew, his previously, who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him, and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they, were, that they were not to be found, we went to see Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Let us pray. Father, we come to you. We've opened up the scriptures and read your word. So much going on here. Lord, I pray that in our inabilities to understand your word, that you, Holy Spirit, would be our instructor today. That you would convince us of this truth found here. And we will be blown away by your grace and kindness towards us. And how you gave your son, Jesus, to die for wretched sinners like us. who are so undeserving of your grace. Father, as, as you have ordained the church to exist in this world, as you have given us your word to, pro, to preach and proclaim, I pray that it would go forth powerfully today. That it wouldn't be the, the words of man, my words, who would ring true in the hearts of all, but it would be your words, your word, properly explained, 
properly delivered to your people. Feed us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. After studying together the first eight chapters of the book, we could agree that there was an incredible void of leadership among the people of Israel. From the failure of Eli and his two sons to Samuel, as we saw last week, of old age, needing to bring his sons to be judged over Israel, his wicked sons, to then the elders who have made horrific decisions. First, where they brought the ark out of the tabernacle to the battlefield and lost it. To chapter 8, where they are demanding of Samuel to appoint for them an earthly king. A king like the other nations. They were looking for a savior king, but they were looking in the wrong places because their hearts are sinful and their hearts are blinded to the fact that they had a king in the Lord. And so we see in them, as we've been seeing even last week, that man is sinful, he's corrupt, he's blind. He, at the same time, is always in search of a leader, looking for someone who could prosper them and protect them. But history has shown time and time again that we are horrible at choosing our leaders. Man, because of sin, tends to choose wrong. And without looking at all of world history, we can just look at the 20th century, the incredible popularity and success of horrific dictators and murderers like Adolf Hitler and Mussolini and Lenin and Stalin and Mao and, and Saddam Hussein and even Fidel Castro. These men who, who were dictators and murderers but who ruled with great popularity even at first and oftentimes to their very end because they were skilled orators. Externally, they had the skill, the rhetoric to persuade people to capture the hearts of their nations, laying all kinds of promises, but never intending to deliver on any of them. What we've seen throughout history is man has suffered greatly. Many have lost their lives at the hands of these leaders but they themselves have put him in place. Man himself has raised up these leaders for themselves. And this is true of the world at large, but because of sin and because of the flesh, it is true that even in the church, there's a tendency if we are wayward, if we move away from God's word, we do the same thing. So Paul, he gives his son of the faith, Timothy, a similar warning in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 through 4 when he's charging him in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. He says to Timothy, Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming, Timothy, when people will not endure sound doctrine, but they will have itchy ears and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Even the church, when it abandons God's word, it would put leaders in place that would not be the ones who would serve them well and point them to the Savior. This is man's problem, and most definitely in our text, in our passage, it is Israel's problem. Israel needs a leader. They need a king. 
but they will choose wrong because what they didn't understand is that they have a king in the Lord. And yet through their disobedience and through their inability to seek the one true rightful king, to acknowledge him and him alone, we could anticipate in the text these beautiful truths that God will never give up on his people. And he will sovereignly act to fulfill all his promises of redemption. So that's our main idea for this text. That God will never give up on his people and will sovereignly act to fulfill his promises. As we look at this chapter, let us be reminded. Let us be reminded that God has agreed with the people. Samuel, he went to the Lord, and he said, these people, these stiff-necked people, they want a king. They want a king like the nations around them. And God said, okay, they can have their king, but they will have their king as a form of discipline. And Samuel, I need you to warn them of what this will look like. And so Samuel, he tells the people what their king would look like. When he's installed, he will be tyrannical. He will take their sons, he will take their daughters, he will take their land, and they will take their fields. And he will enslave them and bring them back to Egypt, metaphorically, but to live in a similar way. And this text in chapter 9, we are introduced to that monarch, the first of the kings of Israel. And we know that his name is Saul. Saul, which means literally dedicated or asked for. You ask for a king, behold, here is your king, Saul. And when we look at chapter 9, and the second half of chapter 10, we don't really see how he led, but I think that the author is very intentional to reveal to us who was this man. If we get to know Saul, then we all understand why he's leading the way that he's leading in the chapters to come. I think the author's intentional with that because he wants to prove the point. It is God who is sovereignly out to rescue his people ultimately and that he is the one who won't give up on them and they will have that on display, they will interact with their first king who will be nothing short of a disaster and used of the Lord to discipline his people. So let's look at these verse, 10 verses as we consider the man that God has chosen, Saul. And from the very beginning of verse one, we find a little bit about his family. We don't know a lot about these people mentioned other than his father was a wealthy man and he was from the tribe of Benjamin. But nevertheless, as we see who Saul was, he is exactly who Israel wanted. The king, this type of person, would be someone who externally would be easily to admire. He would be a presence in the room. According to worldly standards, this is the guy you want up front. This is the one who everyone would admire, that when he walks into the room, he would capture everyone's attention. That's why the verse tells us that he was a young and handsome man, more handsome than anybody else in all Israel. Saul, he gave the good vibe. If he was in our day, he'll be on GQ magazine like, you know. This is who he would be. Who better to lead us, to represent us? 
Imagine how he would be in those meetings with the other nations because some of these Philistines are pretty big. I mean, I mean, David would have to fight Goliath and that was a big dude. Oh, imagine, imagine our king Saul as he's fighting our battles, as he's meeting with our enemies. His appearance would exude strength and he would represent us well. And so the story begins in a very weird way. And yet in a very natural way, I think, for the readers who would read this in their day. For one, it's weird because this great leader, all of a sudden, his daddy's like, hey, I need you to go find some donkeys I lost. But it's also normal for them because that happens. You have animals, you are a farming community, and here's what life is about. And, and I'm assuming that escaped animals is not something that's uncommon. But here's where the story begins. His father says to him, I need you to go and take one of the young men, take one of the servants, and go find my donkeys. In our day, it probably would have been someone stole our 12 trucks. We need you to find the trucks because the business cannot do anything without the trucks. So he instructs his son, and they go, and they're going from town to town trying to find these donkeys. They are asking in different places, and, and, and along the journey... It seems like the author of 1 Samuel wants us to understand the character of Saul. We want, he wants us to understand some things about him. And some things seem to be positive. For instance, ver, first in verse 5, we find that, that, that he is worried. He wants to go back because his father might be worried about him. So he seems to be a young man who respects and honors his father. So he's frustrated. Um, you know, perhaps these donkeys are gone and my dad is going to be anxious. Maybe we need to go back. But secondly, also, a way in which we see something positive about Saul is perhaps when, when his servant, this young man with him, knows about this man of God in the city and he suggests, hey, why don't we go speak? We're in this town. Let's go speak to the man in the city. And the way that he responds seems to be somewhat positive. When he says, oh, we're going to see a man of God in the city. What shall we bring this man? We got to bring an offering. We got to bring a present. Uh, we don't have any more bread. Our sacks are empty. And the servant said, well, I got half a shekel here of silver. Let's give him this. And perhaps he understood the proper etiquette and the things, how things are to play out when you are going to seek somebody's counsel in a city, in a, a town where you do not know. And these two expressions from Saul seem to work in his favor. He's respectful to his father and he's courteous towards this man of God in the city. And, and we can also see how, unlike previous chapters, just the fact that Saul is seeking the counsel of some man of God. I mean, the elders of Israel, they didn't seek anybody's counsel. They were not seeking for Saul uh, or for Samuel. He was out of the picture for a while. They never sought Eli out for counsel. They made decisions about the ark. They made decisions about the king. They sought out their own wisdom. But here we see Saul who is understanding, hey, let's go see this man of God. And see if he could orient us, point us in the right direction. But although it seems that there's some good qualities in Saul, there are other aspects that the author wants us to see about Saul. First, he wants us to understand that this is the king who, who they're supposed to be shepherds of God's people. 
And Saul, he can't even find these donkeys. He can't shepherd a flock, a physical flock. He can't find them. He can't seek after them. He's being led by his servant. So some would argue that that is there to you know, be indicative of the fact that he is not the man who will ultimately shepherd God's people. Because God's leader, God's king, will watch over his people, watch over God's flock. But this is apparently not his skill set. So some other negative aspects about Saul is, is that he brings this gift for this man of God, but some would suggest that it is not he's trying to honor this man. Perhaps what he is wanting to do is just if I pay him, I'll get the information I need. So not so much as the honor for him being the man of God, but just the protocol of I need information, I'll take you something for me to receive it in turn. And I agree with this. Because it's interesting how Saul doesn't know who Samuel is. Isn't that interesting? Saul, it seems like he has no idea who Samuel is, and yet everyone else in the nation seems to know. Chapter 3, verse 20, we find out that all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, we find that the word of Samuel, it came to all Israel. Chapter 8, verse 5, it was, and he said to him, Behold, you are old, speaking the elders to Samuel. Your sons don't act in your ways. A point for us a king. The elders got together, and whom did they ask a king to? They asked Samuel, the leader among all of them. But Saul, apparently spiritually blind, and apparently uninterested in the spiritual matters of Israel. And we'll see more and more in the weeks to come how ignorant and uninterested Saul is where the counsel that he seeks is not from the prophet. He seeks counsel from others and his life and his reign is pathetic. And eventually, even in verse 18, we will see that Saul approached Samuel in the gate and asked Samuel himself, tell me where the house of the seer is. Not, not knowing that he was speaking to him himself. I mean, if we, if we bring this to our day, this is the guy who's out and about, who is very popular, who is turning heads everywhere, and then all of a sudden a man shows up with a microphone, this man on the street type interview, needs a good film of, to make fun of somebody. Says, hey, 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 hey man, I got some questions for you. I'll give you a hundred bucks. I'll give you a hundred bucks. Um, who was Israel's greatest leader during the time of the exile? Um, 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 Zechariah? Who, who is the prophet in Israel right now? Um, not sure. This was Saul. This was Saul. Saul was seemingly, in some regards, not interested in the religious aspects of Israel. We could say perhaps that he was a secular man and how he would reign would be in a very secular mindset, a, humanly, a human wisdom-seeking mindset. And notice how bad of a leader he was. Not only did he not know who Samuel was, he was a bad leader in the fact that 
He didn't make any other decisions. It was his servant who did. His servant, when he's saying at the city, he said, hey, why don't we go back because my dad's worried. He's like, wait, 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 wait a minute. There's a man of God in the city. Why don't we speak to him? Okay, let's go. Hey, but we don't have anything to give him. I got it. I, his servant is saying, I got some money, man. I got you. And he goes. And he follows along. It was his servant who insisted to speak to the prophet. It was his servant who had the money for the offering. This is how Saul is described by our author. And when, and when we get to verse 11, we find the details of, of how then he meets Samuel. And what we know immediately is that, is that Samuel is expecting Saul. Because we know, we know that after Saul agrees with his servant, let's go find this prophet. Let's go find this one who could help us and point us in the right direction. We see all these details that the author gives us. How he meets this young woman who is drawing some water at some well likely and, and they ask her, is the prophet here? Is the seer here? And she's like, oh yes, it's a good day for this. I mean, he is here today. It's a day of sacrifice. It's a day when a lot of people show up to make their sacrifice. It's a day where some are invited to eat with Samuel, but we are just waiting for him to establish himself so he could do the sacrifice, bless the meal, so then all could eat. Oh, it's a good day for you to see Samuel. If you just go up ahead, go up the hill to the city, you can't miss him, he's on his way. He's on his way. And there he goes with his servant. And Samuel knew because the text tells us that as soon as he made it to the city, Samuel came out and walked towards him. Because Samuel, the day before, the Lord had spoken to him. And he had told him about this Saul who would come, the king that he was raising, the king that Israel wanted. Verse 16, verse 16, we find that it says, tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, God says to Samuel. And you shall anoint him to be prince over my people. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Oh, this is the man, Samuel, the day before and the day of, verse 17. It says, when, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is that shall restrain my people. Two interesting words that are used in the text that translated prince. Why prince when he's a king? And why restrain? Well, the word for prince can also be translated as leader. But I think although the people of God want a king, in God's purposes, he is really just raising him as another leader. He has a purpose for Saul. It says it well in verse 16. I need to free my people from the hands of the Philistines who are now gaining strength once again. And God is going to use Saul how he's used others, how he's used other judges. How in previous times he has raised certain men to save them from their enemies. And it's so 
amazing the patience of God, how the people demand a king, reject God himself, but God is still, like he is no king. You call him a king, you could call him a king, but you know what, he's just gonna be a leader among you because I know what's coming. The Philistines are gonna come and I'm gonna use this man to rescue you. Why am I doing this? Because I hear the cry of my people. Because I am a God of promises. I am a God who does not turn back on my people. Praise the Lord for that. We're here today because God is a God of covenants who keeps his promises, who redeems those who are his and goes through all measures, even to the point of him becoming a man in the second person of the Trinity to live a perfect life, to die a perfect death so that we would be rescued from our sins. Dale Ralph Davis, a commentator, said this about Israel. These foolish, stubborn people do not cease to be objects of Yahweh's compassions. If you're a child of God, you rejoice to see that your sin does not dry up the fountain of his compassions, that his a pity refused to let go of his people. This is who our God is. How 2 Timothy 2.13 says, Paul says about God, about the Lord to Timothy, he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And in these two verses, in verses 15 and 17, we find at least four times, four times the Lord refers to Israel as my people, for him to rescue my people. And the whole idea of restraining, some translations might say rule, but this word is used negatively because really what the word is capturing is the idea of imprisonment or hindrance. In other words, although God is rescuing his people from the Philistines through Saul, Saul has a, uh, the Lord has not forgotten the idea that as a good father, he is disciplining his people. He is punishing his people through Saul. And what Saul will do, he will hinder imprison them. He will be that tyrannical type of Lord over God's people where they will not experience the full blessing of having God as their king. Saul will be used to punish his people. Although he will have some military successes in his reign designed by God to show compassion to his people. And until now in this text, I mean Saul is clueless. He's still trying to figure out the donkey situation. He has shown up to the city where Samuel's at, and Samuel has approached him, and he has asked Samuel himself, where's the seer? When he has information, I gotta find these donkeys and go home. But Samuel invites him to stay. And we know from verses 22 through 27 that it's very elaborate, it's very detailed how, how he comes in and he brings them in and there's some leaders there and there's a big table and he sits Saul on the end of the table. He's like wondering, what is going on? Eventually he says, why are you treating me this way? He tells the cook, hey, that meat that was separated, that leg, you know what? Bring it out for Saul. And he asks Saul to stay. Why don't you stay? I have a place for you to sleep here on the penthouse on the rooftop. You come and stay. And the next morning, the text tells us as he's seeing them out, as they're returning on their journey, he asked the servant to keep on walking because I've got to speak with you, Saul. Something I need to tell you. I need to explain everything you've lived. 
why I've treated you the way that I've treated you. And he explains to him, you're going to be the anointed one. You're going to be the one who God has called. And in, verse, in chapter 10, verse 1, we find this idea of the anointing of the king that Israel has demanded. Now, now it's, I like the description. It's important to look at it at, at least for a second. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you. What's this big deal about oil being poured? The kings were always anointed with oil. And perhaps it has many you know, reasons why, or there's a lot that we could say about it, but here are two, two ways in which the oil, what is symbolized when one was anointed, a king was anointed. One was to symbolize the authority that God had over that person. And secondly, it was to symbolize that God through his Holy Spirit, that his Holy Spirit would equip the one anointed to serve in the capacity that the Lord had designed for him. So he was anointed king to be the Lord's servant. So that all would know that he's under the authority of God, he's there because of God, and he's there for the purposes of God. And he wants him to understand clearly this. And God, in his kindness, and in case he has any doubts, he tells Samuel, hey, give him three signs. Give him three signs. The first we, we find in verse 2 there. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men from Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin and Zelza, and they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to see, hey, they're found. You didn't find them. We found them. They're found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you saying, what should I do about my son? Okay. You will receive that information at Rachel's tomb. But further down along in verses 3 and 4, then you shall go from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor, and three men going up at Bethel will meet you there. They have the three goats, they have the three loaves of bread, and they're carrying a skin of wine. They will greet you and give you the bread. And you will open your hand and you will receive it. That's a sign for you, Saul, that what I'm telling you is true. You've been anointed as the one who God has raised to be king, to be the prince of his people. And verses 5 and 6, the third sign, which is perhaps the most important one, because it says, after you shall come to Gibeah am Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines, and there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Oh, these first two signs, hey, may that be affirmation to you. But here's what the third sign will be. The Spirit of God would rush, will rush upon you, and you will be turned to another man. And you will prophesy with these prophets. As a matter of fact, in verse 9, it says that God gave him another heart. Well, interesting. What happened to Saul, verse 11, the people would say, he's a different man. He's a different man. Now, at face value, if we 
just see the story to this point, and we just look at the story through New Testament lenses, and because we know the story of salvation, we know what, we know what redemption is, we'll be tempted to think, as many have concluded, that here Saul was saved, that he has this new heart, that, that he has the Holy Spirit of God. Some would suggest that Saul was redeemed, that he was heaven-bound. We would use the word, he's Christian, he will be in glory. But what happened to Saul is that because of his disobedience, he loses his salvation. Well, that's not something that is biblical. You don't lose your salvation when your sins have been cleaned and paid for, full. So what's going on here? I mean, it's interesting that, that the text says that he became a different person. It says in verse 9 that he gave him another heart. In other words, he, he pointed his affections in a different direction. He didn't say he gave him a new heart, a new heart that was made of stone and now made of flesh. If you see this as a moment where Saul has been saved and then he loses his salvation, our theological system is falling apart completely. You can't see. We need to allow the scriptures to interpret the scriptures. And in order for us to understand this, we need to understand how God worked in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, how the Spirit of God operated among his people, how he gave the Spirit in the Old Covenant, how the function was different than in the New. So what I mean by that is this, on occasions, in several places in the Old Testament, God gave his Spirit to certain people for the work that he called them to do. Not in a salvific way, but rather to accomplish certain tasks. Samson was filled with the Spirit of God. All the judges were filled with the Spirit of God. In Numbers 11, as Moses is trying to lead God's people, 70 of the elders received the Spirit of God in order to be empowered, equipped to help Moses lead. And we understand that in the Old Testament, there's a temporal work of the Spirit of God among God's people that don't necessarily have a salvific nature to it. We know this to be true. Because even as the Spirit of God eventually will read, leaves Saul because of his disobedience and his time was up, who would become the next king? David, who God would show grace to, who out of, out of his line, the one who would come, the one true king will come through David. We will see David in glory. But look at the fear of David when he sins with Bathsheba. He falls deeply. When he pens Psalm 51, what is it that he says in verse 11? He says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. In other words, what happened to Saul may not happen to me. This temporal work of the Holy Spirit, the old covenant ways that the Holy Spirit operated was very different than the new covenant ways that the Holy Spirit operated. 
And perhaps a passage that is worth mentioning for us is Acts chapter 20, and I mean John chapter 20, I'm sorry, and Acts chapter 2. So Acts chapter 20, verses 19 through 23, it tells us that after Jesus had, had been risen from the dead, the disciples were scared, the disciples were locked up in a home, and they were with fear of the Jews, and Jesus in his glorified body, he just shows up, he doesn't open up any doors or anything, just boom, hey guys, they all freak out. And what does he do? The text says that he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. But something interesting that in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came upon them. Now, some would say, oh, oh, they received the Holy Spirit for salvation, and then they receive a second blessing of the Holy Spirit to be empowered in Acts chapter 2. And this is a charismatic Pentecostal perspective. That those who have been saved are waiting for this next wave, this next blessing, in order to serve. That's not New Testament language. We, we could talk about the filling of the Spirit, the empowering of the Spirit. We could talk about, but not the second event that happens in our life. What's happening here? John chapter 20 was still in the Old Covenant. It's still the temporary work of the Holy Spirit of God. Till now, Jesus has been with them in his high priestly prayer, John 17. His main worry is that he's departing from them. They need to be comforted. They need his presence. So what does he do? Before he goes, ascends to the Father, he breathes on them the Holy Spirit in this temporal way. They're fearful of the Jews in order to withstand until the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would now descend to dwell upon them in a permanent way. And the new covenant then we know that once those who have been called by his grace, those whose eyes have been opened, those who have been redeemed are now, in the words of Paul, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling place of God. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and he who began a good work in you shall see it to completion. You will not lose your salvation because it never depended on you. It depended on the gracious God who saved you. So this is something that we need to understand. And we know that when one is redeemed, we have a new heart. We have an inclination towards obedience, an inclination towards repentance and faith. Not in perfection because of this flesh, but sustained and empowered by God. And so while some might think that Saul is this, wow, it's up to him now to just lose it. No, God has used him how he's used the judges. And they want a king. He gives them a king. And he'll have, but we, we never see a, a turning in Saul in his affections and his desires. As a matter of fact, next week you will learn that as all Israel's organized, as they have this ceremony to anoint the king, he's nowhere to be found. He's hiding somewhere, terrified. But we find that externally, perhaps, he hung around with some prophets, he, he prophesied, Things happened externally, but internally there was so much lacking. Because in verses 14 through 16, when he finally gets back home and he's in private and his uncle asks him a question, hey, where did you go? He knew, he knew who Samuel was 
But he decides to say nothing. So, so, so he goes home, and his, and his uncle is, you know, is like, where did you go? It's like, hey, I went to find the donkeys. We couldn't find them. We went to see Samuel. And his uncle's like, you went to see who, Samuel? His uncle knows who Samuel is. What did he say? And he just says, hey, hey you know what? He told me that, that they were found, that everything's cool. He says nothing else. He says nothing else. Some say, well, it's humble Saul. Fearful Saul. I think he was still wrestling with not wanting to be, or how is this going to turn out? You would think that new affections, new awakening, you know, all of a sudden this, this, this anointing. Oh, man, Uncle, man, if you would have seen what happened to me, I was anointed with oil. I was trans- transformed in such a way that there's this new heart that is just, I see the world differently. This is not what we see in Saul. And we're not supposed to see anything else in Saul. You know why? Because the Lord is giving Israel the king that they asked for, who externally was beautiful, handsome, looked very powerful, but who was a hot mess, who would not serve his people well. The elders got their king. They got their Messiah. But eventually through the the bitter experiences of being under that king, Eventually, they will cry out for the one true king who does come to do the will of God and not the will of the people or the world. In that time, the king will come, the one true king will come, and he will do what God has ordained. He would meet the standards of God. In that day, he will reign in contrast to every other lesser king He will stand alone. He will stand alone, not as one like Saul who is clueless, looking for the donkeys that he cannot rescue to shepherd. But the one true king will come riding on a donkey on that Palm Sunday, and the people shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Externally not impressive, as Isaiah tells us. He's not beautiful in any way to look at. He's from humble means, as we've read, born in a manger, ultimately dies a cruel death, a public cruel death as a criminal. Yet that king was powerful and mighty to save. He will be the one that will be the total opposite of Saul. And I love how Isaiah chapter 9 best describes this king, the one true king, In the Old Testament prophetic way, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, as Isaiah says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Israel wants a king. Here's your king. It's going to be a disaster. And we knew that because he's not the king that God's people needs. Three ideas real quick and we're done. Real quick. Number one. 
I want us to take this home with us, this idea that God's providence is at work in the details of our lives. I think that there's a specific, that the author of her Samuel is being very specific and detailed for a reason. You read this story again and you find that he's describing things. And what he is telling us, yes, that Saul showed up at the right time, at the right place, and the donkeys escaped at the right moment. And everything aligned that there was a day of sacrifice in this city where Samuel happened to be there. And every detail orchestrated by a God who's in pursuit of redeeming his people, even through the wicked, rebellious nature of their lives. And I want us to know that even how that happened there, so it has happened with us. Those of us who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been redeemed from our sins, hidden in him, I want you to know that God providentially in his providence has moved and orchestrated. You had certain conversations with certain people and you even suffered perhaps certain situations. The ebb and flow of joys and sorrows filtering through the hands of a providential God has brought you to the place that you're at. And your life even post becoming a believer, even then God, our good God, is moving things that as the ebb and flow of suffering and joy and death and life and the things we receive and the things that he takes away and all the conversations that we have, God is, and don't lose sight of this, he's in the business of saving his people. And the gospel needs to go forth for his people's salvation. You know how he does that? Through your mouth and through your life and through the work of the Spirit in you. I want you to not lose sight. We can't say we believe in a big sovereign God Oh, because we have this reformed view of, uh, of God and we believe in and then be weak at the knees when we see life happening. Oh, man, it's time to stiffen up our knees because we're standing on firm ground. We have a God who's seated on his throne and nothing escapes him. Nothing challenges him. Nothing thwarts off his intentions and his purpose. And you should sleep well at night because of that. God's providence is at work in the details of our lives. You know, Providence Road, we have a logo. A, a, a providence is a big issue here. It's in our name. And, and just quickly here's a sign note. Some of you might say, where did Providence Road, there's no Providence Road out here. <laughs> Where's Providence Road Miami? It's a spiritual road, okay? And the logo is that of a wheel, and it's, it's really out of a sermon by Charles Spurgeon, uh, mid-19th century Baptist preacher who was the prince of preachers, and he's preaching out of Ezekiel about the providence of God. And he speaks in, in the illustration that he's giving about a king who was captured, and has, as he's being taken away, he's walking. He is tethered to the axle of the wagon of his enemies. And on top of the wagon, there's some enemies there. And as they're taking him away, all bruised up and beat up and all in the mud and walking, he starts laughing. And his captors are like, why in the world are you laughing? And he says, because I realized something today. He says, I'm tethered to the axle of this wheel that never changes, stationary, that's my God. But as God's providence is rolling in this world, sometimes you're underneath the wheel crushed where I find myself today. And sometimes you're on top of the wheel where things seem to be easier where you're at today. But because I know who my God is and what he has done, 
in his son, Jesus Christ. I'm okay with the crushing and the freeing, the crushing and the freeing, because ultimately I am freed in Jesus Christ where all things forever and ever will be made right. That's, that's the whole picture of our logo at Providence Road Church. Where's Providence Road? It's a spiritual road that we're all on. And we, and we make sense of our lives through the lenses of the gospel and the, and the providence of our God who is doing and doing what he has to do to accomplish his redemptive purposes. Secondly, I just want us to understand genuine faith transforms and produces obedience. It's a must. It's, it's, it is, it is, we're not saying that you're saved by works. No. Works is a product of saving faith, as James would tell us. If you don't have works, if there's not transformation, if there's not obedience, if it's not somehow seen, then what you're saying is that the Holy Spirit is powerless to change you. And we know that salvation is a positional thing. Faith alone, Christ alone, but that's powerful enough to transform the way you live your life in this process of sanctification as he takes you from here to there and finally glorifies you the day of Christ as he completes his work in you. So we, we who have been transformed by the gospel, there's no more condemnation for those of us who are in him. We've been freed from the bondage of sin and slavery. We're no longer a slave to sin. We are now a slave to Christ by choice and grace. We can put off the things of our flesh and put on the things that God has deposited in us, these good works that we should walk in them. The whole idea of Saul having this anointing but living his life whatever he wanted and him being saved and be heaven. But no, I just want us to know that the power of the gospel is that powerful. God is that amazing that when he saves, he transforms. He brings you from death to life. He takes away your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. And that will produce. And lastly, real quick, let, it, let us not trust in lesser kings. We need to put away the lesser kings. We talked about that last week, right? But it's just worth repeating again. And for those of you in here who do not know Jesus in a saving way, those lesser kings will completely betray you. They will be tyrannical over you. And eventually they will crush you. And if they don't crush you in this life, the one true king will crush you because there's no redemption for you because your only hope is to have your allegiance and be submitted to the one true king who gives by his grace salvation and forgiveness of sin if you would just trust in him and repent of your sin. I would never trust the, the lesser kings.